Welcome to Fearless. Welcome to Thursday. Jason Whitlock, Uncle Jimmy here with you on a fabulous Thursday afternoon. We have a terrific show planned for you today. We're going to go out to Washington, D.C. and talk with our main man, Delano Squires. He's written an interesting column about Joe Biden's school choice and what it says about black black voters and about Democrats and black voters. He also wrote a piece about Ibram Kendi X comparing him to Frederick Douglass and how do you really combat racism. Uh, But we're also going to be joined by uh, Kay Himowitz of the Manhattan Institute. You guys know that over the past couple of weeks I've been talking about uh, the Moynihan Report and how that was a pivotal moment uh, for black families, for black men, for black women in the 1960s. And I've been talking about it here in the past couple of weeks. Kay Himowitz for the City Journal in New York wrote about it in 2005, 16 years ago. She wrote a brilliant piece about the mistake we made ignoring the Moynihan Report. Anyway, I've read the piece. It's phenomenal. And so I want to get her take 15, 16 years after she wrote that piece. Does she still think the Moynihan Report is critical uh, about the narrative of African-Americans here in America? But we're going to start where we've been what we've been talking about the last few days. And I want to go much bigger picture. I, I, I want to I don't want to reduce it just to Simone Biles. We, we've done that. The, the U.S. gymnast who uh, quit on her team on Tuesday during the team competition and has subsequently withdrawn from the all around competition. An American young lady won that earlier today or this morning or late last night, won the all around competition. But Simone Biles has quit under the pretense of mental stress. And we've talked about that Uh, for the past couple of days. But I think there is a much bigger and broader point to be made, Uncle Jimmy. I I think that, (laughs) I I think what's gone on with Simone Biles and America's reaction to it has indicated a level of change in American culture just overnight. And, And one of the, and I'm gonna sound like an old person, and, and you know what? I'm guilty of it. But things are changing too fast in this country. And I look at what, what's gone on in terms of our mentality about quitting. There was no bigger crime you could have in sports than quitting. The worst, the worst name you could be called is a quitter. And just a couple years ago, Vontae Davis, a cornerback for the Colts, quit at halftime or retired at halftime of an NFL game, and everybody ridiculed him. Everybody did. Yes, we did. And uh, now here we are two years later. Simone Biles gets to the biggest stage perhaps on the planet. I, I don't know what event, you know, some, maybe the World Cup rivals uh, the Olympics, but I don't think it does. Uh, the World Cup is a global stage and America's premier athlete, the, the face of these Olympics, 
the person we've been calling the GOAT of gymnastics and maybe, you know, up there in the contention for the GOAT of Olympic sports, quits and says that uh, it, it's mental stress and everybody here in America is showing her an incredible amount of support and appreciation. We've had the CEO of the U.S. Olympics, you know, said it was a selfless act that her walking out on her teammates, saying she can't go on, a selfless, she didn't say it was a selfish, a selfless, L-E-S-S, a selfless act. Okay. The U.S. Uh, gym, gymnastics team put out a statement calling it bravery and courage. And all celebrities from Justin Bieber to Michelle Obama to everybody is, oh my God, what? Well, both uh, of them have won gold medals. <laughs> what Simone Biles has done has been incredible. But look, there's athletes, everybody. Our mentality on quitting has changed overnight in 48 hours. The worst thing in the world you could be is a quitter. Now, if you play the, well, just too stressful, and I gotta protect my well-being. If you play that card, now it's an act of bravery, now it's an act of selflessness, now it's an act of courage. And so just overnight, boom, quitting is no longer a big thing. And I couldn't think of something that was more attached to American values, Americana, then we never quit. That was like our mantra. That was like something that defined us. And, and other things that have defined us, like that play into the lack of quitting is like, <clears throat> we're a society that other societies, particularly over in Europe, say, oh, America, all they care about is work. They work too hard over there. And these 40-hour work weeks and five-day work weeks and you know, no built-in vacations or, or month-long, because in, in some of these European countries, you know, you get six, eight weeks, three months worth of vacation time, and they're, oh, yeah, we need to be more like that. And they have four-day work weeks, and yeah, we need to be more like that. And they spend more time connecting with each other and doing, and we need to- thousand dollars a year, too. We need to do more, we need to be more like that. That's the narrative. And, and so, this quitting and oh my God, take care of your well-being. Even if you've poured your life into this, even if other people are counting on you, take care of yourself, just chill. That seems to be the new mentality that we're trying to foster here in America. And it's almost like we don't want the responsibility of being the world's leader. We want to surrender that to China. Mm. Because I guarantee you this, Chinese athletes, I don't think they're, oh, you know what, this is too stressful. Let me quit. Uh, China is wants to ascend to where America is, and we here in America seem to be saying, we're good with that. We're now celebrating quitting. And I want to point to some other things that suggest we have gone too far with this quitting thing or, or just with this change, this rapid pace. I've seen nothing change quicker than what we just did on this quitting deal because, again, we, we got a whole new perspective on that and I, I, I've seen nothing like it. But other things are changing just as rapidly. 
George Floyd, and, and this will sound like an exaggerated thought, but I, I actually believe it. George Floyd is more revered than George Washington in modern American culture. This has just happened overnight where you can be an ex-con, a paroled felon, a paroled violent criminal, and as long as in your resistance of arrest, the police kill you, and as long as the cop is white and you're black, you can become an instant hero worthy of statues, murals, memorials. You're celebrated in black history and American history as if you were George Washington. George, Wa George Washington was a slave owner. He was racist. We, can't, we can no longer celebrate him. The founder of our country, the guy that uh, helped us win the Revolutionary War. The Maybe George Washington carved. <laughs> Maybe George yeah. Washington carved. Maybe, but we can't... I, I'm just... The cultural change in terms of like... People that we've celebrated as good are now bad, and people that we thought were bad are now good. That's happened overnight. I'm, I'm gonna give you another one, and, and it, it's, it's, we, it's, it's an overnight change, this whole blowing up of the nuclear family, and that any kind of non-traditional family is now seen as better than, than the nuclear family. The Alphabet Mafia has won that war. And it's been, I, I gotta say, that was a long war, but they won it instantaneously. We changed on that. And, and we, anytime you put a television, you turn your TV on and see commercials, they're gonna show you uh, non-traditional nuclear families as best they can. Because overnight, we've changed. The traditional nuclear family, outdated and it takes a village and everybody, there's, <laughs> it's just unbelievable that instantly we've changed on that issue. I'm gonna give you the biggest one. Jesus and Christianity, you say those words, woo, they're coming for you. You're better served talking about Allah and Islam than Jesus and Christianity in this country. We changed on that virtually overnight. We have become a very emotional and feelings-driven nation. Great nations are contemplative and reflective, and they move very deliberately. This nation right now, everything is emotion-driven, everything is feelings, and the people actually in control of America are in Silicon Valley. They're punching in all the information that we're reacting to. America is being treated like a, a, a country that's a computer, and we're being forced to operate with speed and precision like a computer, but the people punching in the data and information are irrational, emotional kids in Silicon Valley, these new billionaires and millionaires and the tech people that are in control of the country, they're punching in the information 
And I'm, my contention is America is malfunctioning. What we're looking at across the board is America malfunctioning. Bad information, bad data, emotion is being shoved down the American system. And we're spitting out emotional, very quick, rapid, decisive decisions that instantaneously change our culture. And we seem to be good with this. We seem to think this is healthy. We seem to think that everything we've done here in America has been dead wrong. And if we don't change things instantly, we're going to get either left behind or we're going to be or, or history is not going to remember us properly. This gen- if we don't rebuke, it's a good word, everything that we did to become the greatest country in the history of the planet, if we don't rebuke all of that instantaneously, we're going to be on the wrong side of history. Therefore, we must change in the moment right now. And I'm just technology. My overall point is technology is killing us. We got these little smartphones in our pockets and in our hands and our heads are tilted down looking at it. And that smartphone and some some hackers in Silicon Valley are in total control of this country. And everything about this country is changing at rapid speed. You can't institute these kind of changes this quickly and have them be good. This is the, the United States of America is the biggest ship that's ever been in the ocean. And we're trying to make it do a 180 degree turn in just a few seconds when it, it should take decades, if not centuries, to make the kind of rapid turn that we're trying to make here in America, or that we're being forced to make here in America. And so I'm not trying to, Simone Biles is just a little child, child, she's 24, 24, grown woman, but to me, she's a child. I'm making her bigger than what she is, but she's just a symptom of this larger problem we have here in America, that our cultural norms can be changed on a whim, and our cultural norms can be changed on emotion and sympathy and empathy and whatever little emotional feeling they've made us feel at the time. If they can come up with a video to make you think, oh my God, America's racist. Did you see what Karen did in Central Park? She, she questioned a black man or called the police on a black man who was walking his dog or whatever. She was walking her dog, whatever it was. Whatever little button they can push to make you emotional. You know what we need to do? We need to make laws against Karen. I mean, literally, this was going on. There were things, Karen laws being passed or being proposed around the country. The, the, the whole, we're just now waking up to the fact that our academic institutions, our educational system has been programming our kids to hate America. This, 
That's been going on for a long time, but we're now seeing the results of it in this era. They've set the table for dramatic cultural change. And I, I'm just sorry, we need to sit back and think about what it is we're doing, who's pushing our buttons, who's really wants this sort of dramatic, instantaneous change in the greatest country the planet has ever seen. I obviously believe, and you've heard me say it, it's China. They're not instituting these kind of changes overnight. They wanna be us. They're still committed to working hard and never quitting and never giving up. We're not. The sports world just changed on a dime. Anybody that has some sort of excuse, oh God, I just don't feel good today. Quit. Just, just quit. I mean, <laughs> every, and it's personal to me and I told the story today in a column I wrote. I quit my college football team in 1989, and it's the biggest mistake I made in my life. And I had justifiable reasons for doing it. In 1988, played on a great team, started every game. Uh, we flirted with being a top 25 team. I think we got up to, we were like 30th in voting. We started 6-0. I played that year with a torn ACL that our team doctor had misdiagnosed or improperly diagnosed. When the season was over in 1988, I went to my own doctor who happened to be uh, the team doctor for the Indianapolis Colts. He doubled as our high school team doctor. He's an orthopedic, one of the best in the country. I went to him, he diagnosed my ACL tear in five minutes. I was so bitter and irritated and felt like I had been taken advantage of. I said, I'm not gonna come back and play my fifth year at Ball State. It's one of the Biggest regrets in my life. And look, you could, I didn't like our head coach. I, I didn't like the way I was treated. I certainly didn't like what went on with my knee. I felt justified in quitting. I was wrong. One of the biggest regrets in my life. We won the Mid-American Conference Championship in 1989 without me. Two of my best friends, Frank Barnes, Ralph Wise. I let those guys down. And even though they went on and won, I still, I let those guys down. I let all my teammates down by quitting. And trust me, many of my teammates rib me, still rib me to this day about it. I deserve it. But that America is now gone. What I did would now be seen as justified and oh my God, uh, Ball State and everybody there is racist and unfair and they exploited you, Jason, and thank God you weren't a sucker and, 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 and quit. And there was a time when I thought that way. But trust me, over the course of my life, it's one of my biggest regrets. I think about it all the time. Should have been on that team. Should have been out there with my friends, developing those lifelong memories. Uncle Jimmy, we're gonna roll out to Chicago. You got a thought? Yeah, I wanna go out to Chicago and hear what my buddy, <laughs> Big G got to say, man. Greg Couch, we're gonna roll out to Chicago. He's we're going to start here. He's also written some stuff about uh, yeah. Aaron Rodgers that I want to touch on. But we'll start here, Greg. You just heard me uh, ramble on about quitting and this cultural change I think we've instituted that quitting is now okay in sports. Do you have a thought? 
Well, I do. I think that quitting is basically like heroin. I think the first time you do it, you can be an addict. I think it's something you've got to fight, fight yourself from doing uh, at all cost. And I think the message that Simone Biles sent out to all the little kids out there who are gymnasts and to just the message to young people in general, you know, there are two messages. She sent one about, you know, taking care of your mental health, taking it seriously and not hiding from it. That's a great message. But to quit like that on the team, that's a scary, scary thing. And I, I have a personal, you know, personal moment like this because my daughter used to be a gymnast, Jenny. And uh, she was good. She was not Simone Biles good, but she was state of Illinois good, okay? <laughs> and uh, at one point, she sort of lost one of the skills that she had that it was really important on the floor routine. And it was six months of crying and, and talking to her coaches and trying to figure out how to get it back and trying to understand what was going wrong. And she still made it to state anyway because she was so good at the other things. And I remember her, clear as bell, sitting there watching her on the warm-ups before she did her floor routine, rocking back and forth, rocking back and forth, too scared to even run across the floor in warm-ups to try this one thing. And then finally she ran across and just ran across, didn't stop and, and do the routine, didn't do the skill or anything, didn't even try it. And then the music started and it was her turn. And you know, as a parent, I'm scared to death right now. And she starts doing her thing and she gets to the corner and here we go, what's she gonna do now? And she ran across and she stuck it. And she ended up finishing first place on the floor routine and she won state in the all around. And I don't think I even congratulated her on that, Jason. I don't think I congratulated her on winning state. I ran up to her and I hugged her and told her how proud I was of her for fighting and for never giving up. And that's how you're gonna make it in this world with that same attitude. You just never ever quit. So, you know, I, the message that Biles sends to girls like my daughter now, uh, you know, I, I hope to God that those girls are, are you know, fighting to the death. Greg, what do you think about my take about there's too much change rapidly going on across America and that we seem to be driven by emotion and by whatever our smartphones are making us believe in the moment. It's interesting. I, I think that things are happening so fast because of social media. Um, that you have a large group of people that you just start following. I mean, and and you're not people aren't necessarily thinking a lot of these things through. And someone's the you know influencers or or you know people on on social media who are supposedly experts on things and and sort of a group think comes in, and then everyone's just sort of follows it and without giving a lot of thought, without thinking about what's in your heart and what's right and what's wrong and what's good and bad. Uh, there's some basic standards and staples that we used to live by. And I think they just slide right past now because of because of groupthink. I think you're 100% right. I want to switch topics a little bit. You wrote a terrific column today about Aaron Rodgers. And you argued that Aaron Rodgers threatened all offseason. I'm going to quit. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to play again. I'm mad with the Packers. He basically tried to pull a LeBron James type move, but you say in the end, he actually won absolutely nothing with his standoff. He's at training camp and won no real concessions uh, from the Packers. Elaborate. I think he was bluffing. I don't think he had any cards. If he had quit, uh, reti retired now, he would have had to give back $23 million in signing bonus money. You know, uh, what, what could he actually do? The Packers were under no pressure to, to you know, to accommodate him. 
And so, yeah, the Packers, you know, he was he didn't like having Jordan Love there. Jordan Love is still there. He didn't like a lot of the moves that the Packers had made. Those moves are still standing. You know, it was interesting is, you know, he says, uh, you know, he didn't want the idea that he was a lame duck quarterback that, you know, after two more years or one more year, they're going to go to love and just get rid of him. And what he ended up getting out of it was he got out of the third year of his contract now so he can leave if he wants to. That that doesn't really extend the commitment to him. So I, I think he kind of embarrassed himself. I think he tried to, uh, you know, he tried from the playbook of Michael Jordan. The guy is obsessed with Michael Jordan. He talked to reporters about it uh, during the summer that he was watching the last dance docu docuseries on ESPN and he loved it. And he was an, he idolized Jordan when he was a kid and made sure that he got to Jordan's last um, you know regular season game. And he cast the general manager of the Packers. I'm not going to try to say his name because I'm going to butcher it. But he prepared, he compared him to the uh, Bulls general manager from Jordan's era, Jerry Krause. And, you know, Jordan was always making fun of Krause. And the funny thing was when Rogers said uh, to Kenny Mayne, well, it's all about the people and people make the organizations and people do this and that. It seems so strange when he said it. But if you were thought about the last dance, what Jerry Krause with the Bulls said was organizations win championships, not people. And Michael Jordan, back back then, I remember it, I was there, Michael Jordan was kind of laughing like, oh, so you think you're winning these championships and I'm not. And it was just ridiculous. And Krause was a, a joke. But it doesn't work as well for Aaron Rodgers because, I mean, two things. Jordan Jordan's message is always clear. I'm tough. I'm strong. I'm going to win a championship. Rodgers, you don't really know what he's talking about. He's trying this game. Uh, you know, he's sort of showing up to be a, uh, at the Kentucky Derby, showing up on Jeopardy, he's showing up in Hawaii, singing and dancing. And you're like, what, what are you after? What are you trying to say? You know, and another thing is, frankly, the level of diva that you can be is directly proportionate, Jason, to the number of championships you win. And Michael Jordan won six championships, and that buys him a lot of, of freedom to do whatever he wants. Aaron Rodgers, 16, 17 years, he's won one championship. That is, that's a failed dynasty. That's not a dynasty. So he came off looking bad. He didn't get anything out of it. Greg, terrific job. Appreciate you. We'll holler at you tomorrow. Jimmy, I don't know if you were following what Greg just said. But he actually, what he's arguing is that Aaron Rodgers wants to be a six foot seven black man. He wants to be either LeBron James or Michael Jordan. Or Jordan Love. <laughs> you know, I've had the same dream, I guess, to be a, a tall basketball player as Aaron Rodgers. I thought you had a dream of being Greg, being a six foot four white man. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know. It's about that time, Uncle Jimmy. Yes, sir. Built Bar time. You know which one I had today? Built Bar. <laughs> Double chocolate. Mm-mm. Good. Nah. <laughs> or was that after yesterday's yesterday. show? Yesterday. I think I had to double chop, but I had it again today. Anyway, I had to double. I mixed it. You know, you ever dip them in peanut butter? They got some peanut butter up in that cabinet. Uh, you told even me better. not to touch your peanut butter. Yeah. <laughs> Keep on going, man. Keep on going. After today's show, though, I think I'm going to have another salted caramel uh, because I'm going to be tired after today's show, after all this great work I've been putting in. Uh, it'll get me ready for my Stairmaster uh, later in the day. Yeah, because you've been hurting yourself, patting yourself on the back. This yeah, that, that truly is. That, that is accurate. Like I've said before, Built Bars have quickly become an office favorite here among myself and the staff. You'll love them, too. With nine great flavors to choose from, you will find yourself enjoying every new flavor you come across, just like myself. 
and Uncle Jimmy here. And if you have trouble deciding, you can order their mix box, which will get you two of each from their nine different flavors in just one package. Go to Built.com and use the promo code FEARLESS to save 15% off your first order. Use promo code FEARLESS for 15% off at Built.com. Welcome. Welcome back to Fearless. It's Delano time. Professor D. Professor D joining us from Washington, D.C. We got a new little special open for uh, Delano, the actual star of the show. Uh, I hear they're in contract negotiations for Delano to replace me. Uh, but Delano has written. Not again. Yeah. <laughs> I just got here. Yeah, I can't keep a job. Uh, Delano has written. Two very interesting columns this week. We'll start with the first. He didn't even write this one for us. Uh, he wrote it for the 1776 Project. Hint, hint. Uh, <laughs> but he wrote about Ebron Kendi, and this Ebron Kendi X is some celebrated writer uh, these days. And, and he juxtaposed him with Frederick Douglass, who's actually here on our wall. Jimmy, who'd you call for? I think you called Frederick Douglass, Bill Cosby at some point. Is that who did you mistake him for? I, I thought that was the dude. Uh, uh, the dude used to always talk about uh, Obama, from, from the uh, oh Cornell West, yeah, yeah, Cornell, yeah, West. Cornell West, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not Cornell. That's Frederick Douglass, not Cornell West. Anyway, I, he didn't have the part down the middle of his head. Go ahead. <laughs> and his teeth is white. Yeah. <laughs> Cornell West is a good dude, man. Anyway, uh, he wrote about. How do you really, how can you really be anti-racist? And, and I'm going to tell you something, Delano. I'm someone who doesn't get this Ibram Kendi X phenomenon. I, I feel like he's the, the knockoff brand of Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, but so help me understand why Ibram Kendi is, is so dangerous and so talked about. Sure. I think he's talked about because he epitomizes um, the symbiotic relationship that the black elite has with white liberals, and specifically um, the black elite who seek empathy and affirmation for oppression that they didn't actually face. Um, they have a symbiotic relationship with white liberals who are seeking forgiveness for sins they didn't actually commit. And both groups have a parasitic relationship. They both feed off of the plight of the black poor. So I'll give a, a quick example. Um, after everyone saw the death of George Floyd last year, um, there were some conversations in, in the public and in the media and elected officials around issues that actually had to do with policing, um, police engagement in black communities. So we talked about qualified immunity. We talked about uh, body cameras. We talked about de-escalation. But those things quickly went away and were replaced by conversations around um, which author sold the most books. We talk, talk about corporate board diversity or corporate diversity more generally speaking. And even up until um, this year, when you saw P. Diddy write a letter to, to um, you know, one of the car companies, I, I want to say it was GM, demanding that they spend more money with black advertisers, he put in that line that many, many of us have seen since last year, which is, and, and, and it looks differently in, in different places, but it always references someone stepping on our necks. 
And what Ibram Kendi does is, as I said, he's the epitome of that relationship. And his work, which really isn't for black folks, because what he says is that all disparities between different racial groups or ethnic groups, so between black and white, or um, well, he, he mainly focuses on black and white, but all disparities between different racial groups is due to racist policy. That, that is the central theme of all of his work. Um, his work leaves no room for personal responsibility. He actually says that personal responsibility is racist. Um, and I, I quoted him directly in my article. Um, his thing, his, his belief is that uh, anti-racism causes racial disparity and that the only way to eliminate racial disparities or to bring about a world of equity, which for him means similar outcomes across groups, the only way to do that is by pursuing anti-racist anti actions. So to him, no one is permanently racist nor anti-racist, but we can be racist or anti-racist in, in you know, any given um, encounter. But he focuses strictly on policy and his ideas turn black folk from the, the authors of our own autobiography uh, into supporting characters of, of a novel that's really about you know, a white savior figure. Delano, when I listen to that explanation, it, it dovetails with, with my thought in terms of there's a group of, a large or at least televised group of black people who think the easiest or the best way to improve black people is to improve white people. Mm. And that's when I see Ibram Kendi running around, it's just like you said, his books are for white people, his advice is for white people. It's no different than, uh, you know, it's why I was, I've never been a big fan of the, the Emmanuel Acho's deal about uh, uncomfortable conversations with a black man. It, it, we seem so concerned with, hey, let's go have conversations about white, with white people about how they can make our lives better. And, and we never say, hey, let's have a conversation amongst ourselves about how we can make our lives better. It, 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 it just blows my mind. Exactly. And, and the, the people who buy their books and watch their shows, they love it because um, in some respects it allows them to say, oh, see, I'm, I'm not racist. I don't really feel that way. Um, and, and sometimes what you see is it's a really weird dynamic in which uh, particularly white liberals will, um, they will throw their own family under the bus. Parents, grandparents, uh, particularly any relatives that live, you know, in red states or voted for Trump. And they do it to signal to, to, to black people that, hey, I'm not, I'm not one of those. I'm one of the good people. I'm one of the people, you know, who acknowledges my, my white fragility, right? I read Robin DiAngelo. I try not to be racist. And, and often what it ends up doing is it comes off as uh, patronizing and condescending. And it presupposes that any given white person in this country um, em enjoys a higher station of life and a better quality of life and privilege um, over any given black person. So when they say that they acknowledge white privilege, I always, in my head, I, I flip it around and I'll say, I hear it as, oh, it's a privilege to be white. And I would encourage more people to, to do that. Whenever someone talks about someone having white privilege, just imagine them, imagine them saying, it's a privilege to be white. And eventually you, you realize how ridiculous it is. So 
for someone to suggest, and, and particularly someone like Oprah Winfrey to suggest that, you know, her, her wealth, her hard work, her determination, you know, the school she's built for girls and whatever other things that she's done for her community, they don't really mean anything because at the end of the day, you know, white people will always have their whiteness. That's something that she actually said. And to me, that, that type of rhetoric is completely disempowering. And, and that's part of the reason I think Ibram Kendi is, is dangerous is because he, he tries, um, his work, his ideas end up turning uh, men with functioning legs and strength and determination and agency um, into children and babies who, who need to be carried um, by, by, you know, a third party who really has more agency and, and more moral responsibility, you know, for our lives. So I think, you know, for, as I said, for many reasons, he's not the type of person who I think should be leading the conversation on race, um, n not just because it ends up being condescending to, to black folk, but part of it is just his ideas are not particularly sophisticated. He, he actually proposes a constitutional amendment that would basically do two things. It would declare all groups are equal, right? He, when he says that, he doesn't mean um, endowed with the same rights because they come from the same creator. He means that left on their own, they would all end up in the same place. So again, that's, that's a totally ridiculous statement to make because you can't even guarantee equality between two siblings born in the same house and raised by the same parents. So that's one, all groups are equal, and that any disparities between groups are a result of racist policy, which then has to be remedied by, I'm assuming, um, an, a government agency that he would influence or people with his ideas would control, and those people would remedy those, those particular policies. And as I said, for, for many reasons, th th yeah. that type of thought process is not sustainable in a country as large and diverse as ours. It seems like there's like a movement to eliminate competition. And, and <laughs> I started today's show talking about how the Simone Biles thing has been, quitting is no longer a bad thing, it's actually a positive thing. I don't want to distract you with that, I want to stay on Ebron Ke Kendi. And one of the thoughts I just, I just thought about, I'm gonna direct this at Jim, is Ebron Kendi sounds like the big fat gold chain that black people like to wear. And the big dookie rope we yeah, used to the wear big, back in the day. We put on the gold chain and all the jewelry. And look, I, you know, I'm t I used to have one. And it was, to me, it was a sign of insecurity, actually. And it was mm. me trying to tell, look at, I made it, look at me, I'm, I'm cool, y'all, blah, blah, blah. And I figured out how stupid it was. But, but what Ebron Kendi has offered himself up to is, hey, white people, buy one of my books. You can wear it around your neck like a big gold chain, and it'll say to everybody, I'm not racist. And to me, it screams that actually you, any of these white people that would buy that and wear that and carry it around, it means they are racist oh, and yeah. insecure about it. And that's why Ebron Kimry is their little accessory toy or little pet project. I want to ask you this, though. More influence, because I'm, I'm kind of late to the Ebron Kendi thing, Delano. More mm -hmm. influential, Ebron Kendi or Ta-Nehisi Coates? Ooh. Wow. So in, in 2021, yeah. that's, a, that's an easy question. Um, Ibram Kendi is by far more influential than Ta-Nehisi Coates. Part of the reason is because mm. um, his thoughts Disagree. around anti... Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you. His, his thoughts around anti-racism... He's going to tell you. And, Just and, wait. And the belief that all disparities 
are caused by racist policy are informing thousands of school districts across this country. You, you see the language of anti-racism come up both, you know, on the administrative level and even into the classroom level. Um, not only is, so, so, so you see it in the curriculum itself, you also see these school districts from coast to coast paying him to come and teach their teachers about anti-racism. And, and that mindset, that ideology ends up working itself out uh, from administration down through the classroom level. The other, the other reason is Tommy Hasey Coates doesn't really write as much. Um, he's not as active. Um, you know, when he was at the Atlantic, he was, you know, turning out, you know, major pieces of work, including the case for reparations that people were reading. He, he really was a, a, an influential thinker, and I, I think, in many respects, and I heard, um, you know, both professors Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter in, in their uh, podcast talk about the succession of uh, black public intellectuals that went from Cornell West to Michael Eric Dyson to ta Coates, and now Ibram Kendi is the heir apparent. Um, to be quite frank, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm really not trying to say this to be disparaging, each time that baton has been passed down, it's been passed down to someone who's really not able to, to carry the weight that their forebears left on them. Um, so the, I think you see the quality of the discourse um, sort of declining as that baton is being passed down. So Cornel West to Michael Eric Dyson. Um, Michael Eric Dyson is the person who slams Bill Cosby for talking about personal responsibility and then writes books defending some of the worst excesses of hip hop. Michael Eric Dyson is also the person that laughs at the notion that black fathers matter in their home and then he goes on Fox News to beg white folks for reparations. So that'll tell you what type of person and what type of thinker he is. And then to Coates, who saw that. by the time he left, was saying things like, you know, there isn't a single problem in black America that the complete elimination of white supremacy couldn't fix. So again, you, you start to see people who strain every single thing that they see in the natural world through the prism of, of their views of, of race. And Kendi is really no different. Uh, I'm, I'm really concerned about what comes next because I, I'm thinking this is, this is the bottom, we're hitting the bottom of the barrel, um, but something tells me that there's somebody who's even less thoughtful, less sophisticated, but who is really fine-tuning their racket, and they're just waiting for the right opportunity, the right viral moment, the right police shooting to come in and say, no, I, I really know how to solve the, the problem of race in America. I think intellectually, it's been a roller coaster. Cornell West at the top, then it descended down to Eric Dyson, who's a clown and who gets off, because uh, I've seen it firsthand on stage with him, loves dropping the N-word in front of white people. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we spoke at the same deal in London, and this dude littered his conversation with the N-word. What, let's say there's five, 600 people in the, in the, in the room, uh, in the audience, may have been 10 black people, and this dude's just tossing the N-word around. Anyway, it, but, and then it rebound, Coates intellectually, I, I, I disagree with him, I, I think he's, uh, damn near satanic, but I do think he's smart. And, uh, and I think he's much smarter than Kendi. And so I look at Coates as the tree, and Kendi's the apple that fell off of it, the rotten apple that fell off the Coates tree. And, mm -hmm. and so 
I, I think, <laughs> and, and, and the other thing that, that I'm, I'm going to string together here is, is I think that Cornell West has a faith in God. I think that Eric Dyson uh, is some sort of minister and comes from a church background. I believe Coates and Kendi are both atheists. And that's been mm. part of the dissent, uh, is that now you're getting two very highly secular people uh, leading the discussion about what should be going on with black people. And that alliance between these secular atheist black men and the secular atheist white liberal community now you got the little satanic cabal, the, the, the circle. And, and so that, that's where I, I, I think without Coach, there would never be a Ibram Kendi. And, and it's like Coach retired and he went off to whatever hell considers heaven. He went off there, he retired and sent his only begotten satanic son, Kendi. Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm just, just, I, I, I'm sorry, Delano. <laughs> I, I, man, I'm sorry, man. This is where I'm not exact. This is the way I see it, Jim. If you go take Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, this celebrated book of his right. that I think won every award that you could possibly. I, I can't remember all the awards they threw at him and the money they threw at him. You go read it. It's like the devil's handbook. There's no hope in there. Zero yeah. hope. It, it, when you take hope away from people, you're sentencing them to death. Mm. And that, when I look at Coates and Kendi, that, and when you start saying what, what Kendi's saying and what Delano has explained, and it's accurate, when you start telling people your destiny is not in your control, it's in these white people that you don't know that are all over Twitter and social media, they're actually, that's, that's taking more hope away from you Actually, you and God working things out and figuring things out. Now he's installed the white liberal as God, and you need to place your hope and faith in them. I, I'm not joking when I call this stuff uh, satanic. Delano, you made an analogy in your piece for the 1776 project to Frederick Douglass and juxtaposed mm -hmm. him to Ibram Kendi. Why did you do that? Why is Frederick Douglass, 100 years, 120 years later, still very relevant today? So um, I think it's important to, to say a little bit about the 1776 Unites project. So um, that project, yeah. um, which came out of the, it's part of the Woodson Center. So you know, many of the viewers may know Bob Woodson and the work that he's done in communities, um, particularly in black communities across the country and, um, you know, funding programs and helping you know, lo local leaders on the ground um, take control of their communities and, and provide you know, pathways of opportunity and education um, for, for people all across the country. So 1776 arose as a direct counter to the 1619 Project and the type of narrative that it was trying to um, spread both about this country and about uh, black people's existence in it. And the purpose of 1776 Unites Project is, is to tell a different story, to focus on the, um, the determination and the strength and the resilience uh, of black people who came, you know, from this country's inception, who have made a way out of no way, 
um, who have progressed in the midst of uh, unspeakable um, evil at times and, and slavery and segregation and oppression. And even throughout those, you know, throughout, you know, that entire time period, we had, we were building strong families and, and businesses and schools and organizations. So 1776 really wants to tell the story of, of hope and inspiration. And, and really that, that gets to what you were talking about before. Um, I chose Douglas as a, as a person to juxtapose with Kendi because even though he doesn't use the term anti-racist, um, his views are very much anti-racist because he starts from, in, in my opinion, the right position, which is to say um, that the humanity and dignity of black people does not come from or is not based on the opinions of whites, whether they be slave owners or you know, BLM supporters. It comes from their creator. Um, it comes from the same creator that creates all people. So he, he roots his ideas of, of, of justice in uh, God as the creator and God as the, the, the being that gives us um, our dignity um, and gives us rights and the types of inalienable rights that, that I found in documents reference. And then from there he works it out. And he says that uh, the Negro, as he calls us in, in his speeches, because again, you have to consider he's writing his speeches in the height of the abolitionist movement. And he said, when people ask the question, well, what shall we do with the Negro if emancipated? His response is, do nothing with us. Let us do for ourselves. He compared us to apples on the tree. And he said, if the apples won't stay on the tree of their own accord, let them fall. That's a very, very different response than you would expect from someone in that time period. But he realized that black people were human. We are human first. Our skin color is, is, is you know, nature's doing and God's doing. But our humanity is really what's at the core of us. So when he writes, he writes as a person who applies the same laws of, of nature universally to all people. And that really gives you a basis on which to do authentic anti-racism. It's not one group is morally responsible for another group. It's that all groups have the same levels of moral responsibility. All groups have to work if they want to eat. All groups um, desire justice and should be given justice. And, and I think he's a, he's a great um, historical figure that we can learn a lot from today because you know, he, he saw himself as, a, as, as an American, as a, as a patriot, as someone who was very critical of the institution of slavery and didn't mince his words about that. Um, but he was, he was, he's also a man. He wasn't looking for anyone to carry him. Um, he wasn't looking, he even said that justice with benevolence is a beautiful thing, but benevolence without justice is a mockery. And his thing is every time that, that the whites even of that day tried to do something for the Negro, it ended up hurting him um, more than helping him. And I could, I, even though again, he, he was a man of a different generation, you could see how that played out, whether it's in the expansion of the welfare state or, or today, the lowering of expectations, both in the classroom um, and morally speaking, you know, so when people who say that they are friends of, of you know, the black, the black man say that you should be judged by a totally different and lower standard of evaluation, of behavior, of conduct in the classroom. Um, those things are done in the name of racial justice, but all they do is, is hurt people um, who really should be subject to the same laws as anybody else.
Delano, I'm going to wait till tomorrow to ask you about the column you wrote today, because uh, I want to get into that. You wrote an interesting piece about Joe Biden and the school choice decision and the impact on D.C. parents and children. And we're going to wait till tomorrow to get into that. But uh, as always, thank you so much. Great job. Thank you, guys. Uh, go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe and that notification button. Give me some likes. Put some nice comments in there. Give me some love. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's having problems lately, yeah, folks. I really give, am. Give me some love. Please huh? do. Please hit do. Hit the like button. All right, we're going to roll out to New York and talk to Kay Himowitz about the money hand report that you've heard me talking about over the past couple of weeks. She wrote a terrific piece about it 15, 16 years ago. I just started writing and talking about it in the past couple of years. All right, stay tuned for all that and more. Thanks. Welcome back. Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. We're going to roll out to Brooklyn, New York, and be joined by one of the senior fellows at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor and writer at the City Journal, Kay Heimowitz. Uh, we're going to talk with Kay about Daniel Patrick Moynihan and the Moynihan Report. You guys have heard me talking about this over the past couple of weeks, that the Moynihan Report, in my view, is one of the critical moments. It came out in, I believe, in 1965. It was published, I think it was written in 64. Daniel Patrick Moynihan was uh, a member of the Kennedy and Johnson administration. He wrote this report the, about the Negro family and the case uh, for investment in black families back in the 1960s. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson jumped behind it initially. And then the media does what it tends to do. It smeared a report that was talking about investing in the black man and the black family, and it smeared the report as racist, and Lyndon Johnson eventually backed off of it. I think it's one of the critical moments in African-American history and in American history, the fact that we ran away from this report. And so over the course of me talking about and writing about the Monaghan the report, I ran across what Kay Heimowitz wrote in 2005, on the, around the 40-year anniversary of the uh, Moynihan Report, and it was phenomenal and fantastic, and so we wanted to get Ms. Heimowitz on the show, and thank you so much uh, for joining us, uh, Kay. Am I right in thinking that the Moynihan Report is a critical, pivotal moment in African-American history and American history, quite frankly? Well, certainly in modern American history, I think it is, because it was at that moment that somebody, namely Daniel Patrick Moynihan, recognized that something was going on among blacks, at least in uh, urban areas, uh, that was going to act as a barrier to any kind of improvement or, or progress in, in black lives. And um, he... Uh, you know, what, what's amazing about it is at the time, what he was most struck by the fact that 24% uh, of black children were being born to single mothers. Uh, today, that number is 70%. Uh, 
Um, and I think that moment in 1965, when it was 24%, we might have been able to halt some of the uh, trajectory that followed from that, and we didn't. And it's my argument in my work and uh, in this particular article as well that uh, Moynihan was right and that the black family, that family uh, educates children, uh, socializes them, and with the collapse of the two-parent family, uh, we um, were going to see a lot of trouble in the future, and that's what's happened. So you write your piece in 2005. It's titled The Black Family, 40 Years of Lies. What was the reaction to your piece in 2005? Did it spark much discussion or anybody just like, we need to go back and re-examine this. Any chance we could get a do-over and actually invest in the black? And now we need to invest in all families, but... Uh, what was the reaction in 2005 to your piece? Well, um, in my experience, um, what happens with people who don't agree with you, if you're not a, a very, very important figure, which I'm not, um, they'll do their best to ignore it. Um, I got a lot of feedback from people who were center, you know, on the center of the, of the political spectrum and on the right, uh, very positive feedback, a little less so <laughs> from the left and the media as a whole. So nothing's changed, Jason. <laughs> it was, in 2005, things were pretty much like they were now. Actually, as I was rereading the article after some years in preparation for talking to you, I was amazed at how nothing's changed in terms of the kind of discussion we're having and in terms of how hard it is to to bring this issue of the family into the forefront, uh, despite the obvious impact it's had on children and the next generation of black children. Okay, I, I think it's just like I'm saying today is Thursday. It's a fact that the destruction of the family has been more damaging to black people over the last 50 years than racism. I think that's an indisputable fact. Why can't we have that just basic understanding, the data and everything backs up that assertion that Daniel Moynihan put together in 1965 and it's been proven true over the last 55 years? Yeah, well, I think, um... Number one, we have to keep in mind that it's very possible that what happened to the black family, in fact, likely that what happened to the black family is related to slavery uh, and is related to the um, Jim Crow and, and a lot of uh, the other racist policies of the past. So I don't want to say there's no connection between the two. But had there been um, some halt in this decline that Moynihan noticed in 1965, we would have had, I think, a lot more children, black children, growing up in much more stable families and stable homes and stable neighborhoods, um, and that that would have um, at least uh, stopped some of the hemorrhaging that we were seeing in 65. Why people don't want to believe it? Um, especially now, you, I don't need to tell you, 
Um, there is a, a dedication to the idea that not, nothing but racism can explain a lot of the disparities or all of all of the display, disparities between blacks and whites. And, you know, I, I have no question that something like the wealth gap is related to um, uh, racism and, and redlining and things like that. Um, but there are were there are opportunities for black kids that they are not able to take care take advantage of because they're not doing well in school. Their home lives are often chaotic and unpredictable, which is the worst thing you can do to children in terms of gearing them for the future. Uh, and the schools just frankly cannot compensate for the problems uh, that children are having at home. I want to be clear to my audience and listeners. Daniel Moynihan argued that racism caused the condition that he diagnosed. And, and, and he was crystal clear about that. And I want to be crystal clear about that. Racism put us in a condition that he diagnosed in 1965, and then he offered real solutions and, and President Johnson seemed to jump on board, but I, I, I re, in rereading your article, in my own interpretation of other things, I think there was like, and you kind of hinted at it in your 2005 article, you, you kind of sarcastically or jokingly, but it's like, I think there's a group of people that didn't want the family fixed, the black family in particular, families in general, because it conflicted with the, as you said at the time, the gay movement is now the LGBT movement, the feminist movement, it conflicted with that. They wanted to take the country, and they have taken the country, away from family to a new definition of family. That was certainly going on in the 1970s. I think things have changed a little bit today. But uh, in the 1970s, everything was, it was a radical time. Uh, I was there and I remember it. Uh, and I do talk about feminists and what their role in this uh, neglect of this issue uh, was. And it's very profound. There was a real reluctance among feminists to take marriage seriously um, as a uh, social necessity. And um, they, you know, a lot of lot of feminists were, you know, they were white. Uh, most feminists I, that I they, of the uh, you know establishment feminists were white, uh, middle class, doing pretty well. Um, many of them would not have, or some of them would not have children, uh, and um, they saw the marriage as um, a way of keeping women down, of, of making them dependent. Uh, and what they uh, believed in was the independence of women. Um, and when it came to single motherhood, which was growing, particularly among blacks, it didn't really start to grow among whites until somewhat later. Uh, they were determined to show that uh, it, it, women could do it just fine. You know, they didn't really need men. Uh, whether children needed fathers, they never really spoke about. Um, they were interested in this, you know, in women demonstrating their strength and independence. Um, one of the phrases that you hear over and over um, 
from feminists, both white and black at the time, was the, the strong black woman, uh, meaning that to imply that women, that black women needed men in the family was to uh, somehow show them to be weak. Uh, rather than um, concerned about their own, their children's well-being. The other thing I found fascinating in your article, you gave me a bit of history that I, I didn't know. You talked about it in the 1970s. There was like a 15-year period starting in in the early 1970s where academia, the book publishing industry, just ran wild with promoting single motherhood. The strong black woman. I I knew nothing about until I read your article about William Ryan, who, who was a part of CORE that coined the phrase and wrote a book called "Blaming the Victim," which basically outlawed any hard truth type discussion about what was going on with black people because if you talked about the problems, you were somehow blaming the victim. But there was a, a whole movement to shut down uh, the Moynihan Report and anybody that thought that America needed to stick with the nuclear family structure as a cultural norm. That's right. Um, like I said, the 70s were very was a very radical time when it came to the family. Uh, and there were lots of experiments going on. You probably have read about the communes and, and um, uh, that and of course divorce was increasing uh, uh, dramatically also, um, and step families and all of that were were increasing, and I think that the um, it, it, a lot of the people who are in the book publishing industry and in the media are educated people who um, were wanted to embrace this new radicalism, even if they didn't live it themselves. Uh, so yes, in the 1970s, you had all sorts of uh, pushback on anything uh, about the traditional family. And um, in, at the same time, you had also had the rise of the um, family values right wing, partly in response to this, well, largely in response to what was going on um, in uh, in more establishment circles. So uh, this became a huge political issue, uh, even if it wasn't always um, focused on the black family. There was this uh, debate, uh, uh, really bare knuckles debate, uh, between um, conservatives and liberals about the family. Um, and um, liberals just didn't want to see what was going on with the black family for their reasons, which is that they didn't want to make women feel bad and they didn't want um, uh, they didn't want religious values to be influencing the way that the country was going. So there was tremendous pushback. I you know I should mention uh, uh, you just mentioned the uh, William Ryan, the the guy who came up with the phrase blaming the victim that we still use today. Um, and that became a very central motif in people's thinking. Um, we have victims uh, who we need to treat with great care, uh, not just compassion and understanding, but also uh, not say things that might offend, might offend them. 
even if um, the truth was there was this tremendous disorganization in the black family at the time. So, uh, you know, it was feminist. It was some um, liberals and radicals on on the uh, in, on the left, um, but it was also uh, some of the civil rights establishment. There was a great um, uh, debate, or or at least split, uh, between. Uh, black uh, leaders who who wanted to recognize this issue, and those who were very offended by it. I mentioned in the piece that uh, the Watts riots happened very very quickly after the Moynihan report came out, and a lot of black leaders felt that this was report was was released to explain the riots. And they really uh, were in, were determined that uh, people understand black frustration and despair, and they thought that this report would take attention away from that. Also, remember, we're just coming out of the civil rights movement. All of these uh, racial stereotypes um, are very prominent in people's minds still, and one of those stereotypes was of the pr promiscuous black male. And people thought, or some people imagined, and I and uh, I think this was really part of their thinking uh, when they posed the uh, the Moynihan report, some people were thinking that this, this report would reinvigorate, revive that idea of black promiscuity and licentiousness, um, and did not distinguish that from the family. Last question, and when I read your article, it ended on a sad note to me in 2021. You ended your story on an optimistic note, <laughs> and I just can't imagine you retain <laughs> that same level of optimism in 2021. Well, you're right about that. So in 2005 or <laughs> 2004, when I started working on this, uh, the number, uh, you know, we were already up to about 70% of black children being born to unmarried mothers. What hadn't happened yet was that the white numbers and Hispanic numbers um, also began to soar after that. So I, you know, I didn't predict that, didn't know it was going to happen. Um, so that was one thing that I uh, miss, miss called. I think the optimism may have been more my editors than mine. I tend to be a little, a uh, uh, little bit of a downer on on the future, and I think he might have might have wanted me to find some hope. And there were a couple of trends just beginning that maybe we thought maybe this is the beginning of something. It wasn't, but. Um, yeah, so it was. I think it feels a little tacked on, and I think it was. And I think I would if it wasn't tacked on, I was wrong. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You were well ahead of the curve, or Moynihan was well ahead of the curve. I was just thankful to read your piece. You do great work. You're not a little person. You're a journalist. That makes you a great person. If oh. our society was back if it ever gets back to normal <laughs> if they ever allow the truth to be printed again uh <laughs> you'll be celebrated thank you so much thank you very much bye-bye all right jim 
you got to read this report. I, I have to read the report now. Because really? it's, it's, I'm reading and I'm like, wow, this woman said all this in 2005. Yeah. And we just ignore. The, the truth is illegal. We've illegalized the truth. We've created this little fantasy world for all of us to live in. There's, there's nothing wrong here, nothing to see here. It, there's no supervision in, zip, in complete zip codes. No, no parental supervision, total chaos. It's a war zone. Uh, gangs are in control. Again, just think about it. Everybody's comfortable going on TV. Man, the KKK. Oh, oh, oh. White God. folks. No, no, but literally. And uh, then it's like, man, these damn Trump supporters. And I'm like, you got people that wake up every day worried about the Crips and the Bloods. And no one on TV will ever let those, those two names come out of their mouth. They'll never talk about gang culture and all the death and destruction. But in these same zip codes where the Crips and the Bloods and MS-13, the Gangster Disciples, they're killing everybody they can in sight. Ain't nobody in those neighborhoods seen the KKK, the Proud Boys, right-wing militias, any Trump supporters. There's none. They don't see any of if they ran up on them, they, first of all, the KKK, they would be too scared to go in there in the first place. The Proud Boys, they're not going up. At, but we'll hop on TV and talk about Trump support. People we've never seen and ain't done a damn thing to us. And look, did they do something to my grandmama? Absolutely. And I talked about it and my grandmama's family and all that. The, the KKK used to come see us. Now they don't. They barely exist. The damn Trump support, I don't know where they live. or Well, I do know where they live. They live right here in Nashville, other places, but they ain't bothering me. Jason, remember when I grew up? Or anybody up? else. I, I, Jason, when I grew up, when I, I grew up under the condition of if you see a carload of white dudes, yeah. you better run. <laughs> Nowadays, you see a carload of black dudes, you better run. <laughs> Times done change. YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Uncle Jimmy's got a song for us today, and we got an approval rating on Aaron Rodgers. All that and more. Welcome back. Your boy a little hungry, had to grab him some peanuts. Uh, stomach's upset. <laughs> Uncle Jimmy, you couldn't have kept that to yourself. No. You know, I'm very transparent. <laughs> very transparent. Your life is an open book. Yes, it really is. Please, feel free to close the curtains. <laughs> uh, Jim, you told me you got some song. No, no. I've been waiting. It started been... from the beginning. Oh. Hell no. started from the beginning. Well, you started. It started on Monday. Yeah, it started on started Monday. started on Monday. We did the little Tom Brady, Little Nasty X thing. Little nasty X-rated, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, we had a discussion. You told me, we, we said in the, pre, in the pre-meeting, I told you, you said, Jim, you got to look at this video. I told you, Jason, I don't want to look at the video. Yeah. Jim, you got to look at the video. Industry baby, yeah. In the, and I told you why I didn't want to look at the video, because yeah. I got a strange brain. I, I can't even look at forensic files no more. Because I look at forensic files, I wake up thinking somebody done sprayed Luminol all over my room. <laughs> and come to find out, it wasn't even Luminol. It was just a good dream. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? So I sat up here, man, and I watched this damn uh, video. Yeah. Go to sleep, and sure enough, I start dreaming about this damn video. 
And, he, and I'm show you what, let me show you what happened here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You started dreaming about little Nas Man, Nas? just let me tell you this damn story. I told you. I didn't want to look at the damn video. <laughs> no, you going to make me look at it. <laughs> and I had to look at this video, and I go to sleep. And what's the next thing I hear while I'm asleep? First thing, first thing I hear is, yeah Now, I don't know what language that is, but normally following that, some bad things happen to a black man. <laughs> okay? But then the next thing I hear is this, dun, 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 dun. Then I hear this fool talking about, well, I'm going to take Nas X. I see little Nas X on a stripper pole. Told the devil, ride until you can't no more. <laughs> little Nas X was on a stripper pole. He got his gay pride, so I guess I can't say no more. <laughs> well, let me state some facts. The industry baby's whack. He's got these little boys and they grabbing on his sack. Grown <laughs> men in jail, blamed each other's tails. Jason, what the hell? I wonder what is that smell? Jason, can't you tell me nothing? Cause giving the devil a lap dance is something. Jason, you can't tell me nothing. Cause these little kids really think they is something. <laughs> now, hold up, wait a minute, let me put some Jimmy in it. A lot of these rap stars running round wearing bras, knowing that they cannot sing, that's why they swing on ding-a-lings. That's why we got little Nas X on a stripper pole. Told the devil, ride until you can't no more. Little Nas X on a stripper pole. He's got his gay pride, so I ain't gonna say no more. That's why I didn't want to watch that damn video. <laughs> Little Nas X on a stripper pole, he told the devil, ride until you can't no more. <laughs> oh! <laughs> yeah, no more Little Nas X videos for you. I told you. Don't watch, what's the one, Montiero, don't watch that one. Oh, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Grown men in jail, playing each other's tail. <laughs> Homie, what's that smell? I think it's coming from his cell. Come on, bro. <laughs> Woo! Yeah! <laughs> uh, approval rating. Can we, let's transition. Let's transition. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers, uh, who we talked about with Greg Couch earlier in the show. Shut up, Corey. He's reported to training camp. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Ain't nobody tell me nothing. Oh, man. Anyway, he's reported to training camp and job performance. What you give him? He was MVP last year. What, what can you give him? He's got, he's got to be dang near perfection, so I'm going to give him a 24. I give him... Um, let's see, how many Super Bowls he got? One. Uh, what, what, goal, what yard line did he get to last year? The Eight. one. Oh, I don't he know. He got down to the one. Oh. How many more years he got left in Green Bay? One. That's what he get from me and job performance. Oh, oh one. one. I, man, the guy was MVP. He's damn, that's damn near perfection. Come on, man. man. Got to be a 24 character. I'm not, I'm not high. I'm not down on his character. I'm not super high on his character. I'm going to go 15 in character. 
I get a man of 25 on his character. He kept it real. He, she, when he heard that Jordan Love was getting ready to move into his neighborhood, he told you straight out, I took straight to the bottle and took, uh, and took a four-fister. <laughs> he, he kept it real. He did not want a black man moving into his neighborhood. <laughs> 25. All right, authenticity. You got to be high on his authenticity then, too. I'm going to give him a 10. I think he's, kinda, he's been kind of phony here. Hey, man, I'll be honest with you. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I'm going to keep it real. He's authentic. He kept it real. He, he was the one. He said, hey, man, I don't want that brother in my, in my locker room. Or at least next to me, I don't. <laughs> he, he can go to Minnesota somewhere, but he, we don't need that mess around here. It factor. He's got the long hair. He looks like a movie star. He, he upgraded from Donica Patrick. Not Donica, if you're watching. I like Donica Patrick. But, uh, he, he she, ain't, she, she ain't Amish. Yeah. <laughs> no, she's not. <laughs> she dumped, she dumped Donica Patrick and upgraded, in his opinion, is now getting married. I'm going to give him a 23 for Ed Factor. Yeah, I don't know what the hell it is, but I was going to give him a 10. Yeah. But due to the fact that this new girl that he done upgraded to, and based off of Donica Patrick, I, I'm going to give him five more, so I'm going to give him a 15. 15, all right. We both have him at a grease fire. I got him at 72. You got him at 66. Aaron yeah. Rodgers, there's your approval rating. Pretty high, actually. I mean, pretty, pretty much. I mean, he got a, he got a little bit. Listen, they should be playing my girl tomorrow right now in <clears throat> freedom. Don't screw it up by singing that little nasty X-rated song you came up with. That's it. Like that's that all. Number. We'll see you tomorrow. Freedom. Come on, My sister, no relation, we all just want to have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone, I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back, we are receiving, all receiving, we all want to be free. We want freedom. I just want, I want to be, I just want, I want to be, I just want.